Welcome to Cognation. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about concussions and sports. The impact of sports like football or boxing. Some people would even say soccer, where you might have people butting heads and potentially having a concussion and how that can, the effects of that might accumulate over time and cause some potentially very serious problems with your brain. Specifically, we're going to be talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, as well as some of the more minor effects of concussions. So I think this is a, it's been kind of a hot topic recently, or at least in the past few years when people are thinking about what the results of playing high impact sports are. So, you know, is it worth it to play football in high school if it could potentially lead to uh, cognitive debilitation so that you have difficulty in performance later on? Uh, and what the results of uh, playing football for an entire career, say in the NFL, what that does to your brain? I think we've come a long way in understanding how concussions work, what the shorter term effects and the longer term effects are. That's right. And in the state of California recently, there's been some legislation in and around the amount of time that high school athletes can spend in full contact football, for example. So they're limiting the amount of time that people can do full contact in practice. So really trying to just reduce the amount of total exposure to you know, potential head injuries in football. So it, it kind of raises the question or begs the question, if this is really so bad that you want to limit the amount of times that you're banging your head into somebody, mm -hmm. should you be doing this at all? And is there a safe amount of football to play, for example, or a safe amount of boxing to do? Or particular precautions that you might take that could um, make sure that you're less likely to sustain any of these kinds of injuries. That's right. Exactly. I think maybe to start off with, it might make sense to talk a little bit about what a concussion is and how it happens. And then we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the history and background of what we know about the long-term effects of concussion. So what is it that a concussion does in the first place? Um, so some a little terminology. So we tend to call uh, any kind of at least mild kind of injury from a concussion or from some head insult traumatic brain injury or TBI. So we might refer to things as TBI in this episode. And the kind of TBI that people might be familiar with is, you know, just bonking your head against something. Then it results in uh, just kind of uncomfortable sensations afterwards. So some dizziness, maybe uh, some nausea, uh, difficulty in concentrating, uh, even some amnesia around the event, and headache is extremely common. These uh, A standard kind of concussion like this, which would be a mild kind of TBI, is something that would be resolved within, generally resolved within a few weeks, and then you can get back to normal functioning. Um, right. So that's in terms of actual functional differences. There are indications from uh, neuroimaging that it could take, you know, usually there are some... Um, problems that hang around uh, maybe for a month or more to get to normal. So even though you're functioning perfectly normal, your brain still takes a little longer to uh, fully prepare and and get ready for functioning. In terms of the physics of what's happening here, I think 
the big issue in concussion is, you know, the issue of acceleration. If you are running at somebody and you've got your head down and they've got their head down and both of your heads slam together, the helmets slam together. If you're running really fast and the other person's running really fast, then you suddenly come to a stop. This is a very quick deceleration. So in other words, there is a tremendous force that's applied to your head at that moment. And what ends up happening is the inside of your head, the brain, doesn't slow down as fast as the outside of your head, your skull. So the soft tissue in your brain slams against the front of your skull. That's called the coup. And then oftentimes it rebounds and slams back into the back of your skull. That's called the counter coup. Yeah, that's right. And so if you get that kind of injury where you're, and maybe something like in a car accident where you're sort of jostled forward and then backwards, that would be exactly that coup and counter coup kind of um, situation. And the result of this is that you get sort of focal or the most injury in the place where you come in contact with something or where your head is going forward. And then as your head snaps back in the other direction, you get the second most damage on the other side of your head. So you can get some sort of physical smushing of your head through uh, this this hitting, you know, your your squishy brain hitting against the skull. So this is something that kind of reminded me of an earlier episode that we had on the Frey effect. And if you remember, the Frey effect was uh, hearing sounds from microwave radiation. So microwave radiation, pulsed microwave radiation kind of jiggles the brain a little bit. And that um, frequency that it jiggles at can, uh, can go over to the auditory system and you can actually hear a sound. Now, thinking about the brain this way, you've got uh, this soft, jiggly tissue that's surrounded by a bunch of cerebrospinal fluid and it, this is built to protect the brain as much as possible. So, you know, minor jolts back and forth shouldn't do damage to the brain. But if you hit it hard enough, you know, this really soft tissue can't be protected anymore. So you're sort of reaching the limits of how much your um, cerebrospinal fluid and your skull can help. The other result of this, so besides causing damage to the place where it's hit and the opposite side of the head, you also get stretching in the brain. So since it is uh, this soft tissue, as it you know accelerates at a different rate, as you said, Joe, than the skull, because the skull is stopped immediately and say the brain is still moving forward, this causes some stretching out of the soft tissue and a direct result. Well, there are a whole bunch of direct results of that, but that's one of the basic disturbances that's being caused by a concussion. And you know this kind of stretching of the connective tissue within the brain the, the exact model of how this works is not fully worked out from a physiological standpoint, but the current model really is that you have axons, which are the long bits of neurons that connect between different locations within the brain and send signals across from one neuron to another neuron. These axons are the parts that are getting really stretched out, and this is causing some direct damage to the axons themselves and the neurons themselves but it's also uh, potentially causing inflammation and some secondary kinds of effects uh, down the road. And 
you know, this will be, you know, localized in a particular area, but it can also be quite general because the entire brain is being distorted in its shape uh, and That's stretched. Right. And, and as we're learning more about the processes of exactly how this happens, I mean, you've got this kind of finely tuned organ, the brain, that's, you know, it's got all these neurotransmitters moving around in it and all of these connections. If you stretch it out, you're just kind of, you'll just upset the equilibrium here. So one of the immediate results is that you get, uh, you get a cascade of neurotransmitters. So these chemicals in the brain just kind of going out of whack. And one, one result is that you change calcium concentrations in the brain which causes this whole chain reaction that um, can cause degradation to the cell walls and can also cause irreversible damage to axons in the brain. So there's, a, there's essentially a, a chemical imbalance that's causing some, you know, because of this physical damage, it's disrupting the chemical concentrations in different parts of your brain. Some of this is what causes overexcitability of some neurons and then depletion of some of these energy sources and irreparable damage to certain axons. And the heart, the more the damage there is, the more you're going to disrupt this whole system. I was thinking, going over some of these materials, uh, preparing for the pod, you know, why is this a topic now? Uh, humans have had heads <laughs> forever, you know, throughout our evolution. And, uh, you know, it seems to be increasingly a topic of conversation. And I think there's some very you know, real reasons why that is. So what is it? The kind of accelerations that we're experiencing, whether we're in a, driving in a car or we're slamming into each other with football helmets on, are not evolutionarily typical accelerations. In evolution, prior to the advent of motors and engines, you wouldn't really get the kinds of speeds typically that you get in a car unless you're falling out of a tree. Yeah. And the kinds of decelerations that you get when cars impact one another are really dramatic beyond what you would normally experience any in any other situation, you know, in evolutionary history. And then in the case of football, one of the reasons why football is so dramatic even though people have been butting heads for forever is that repetitive in a way that is enabled by the helmet itself. So because it hurts much less to bang your head into someone else when you're wearing a helmet, you are you do it more often, you're willing to do it more often, and it doesn't seem like it's as damaging when you're So doing when you it. have the safety gear, you actually can be doing more damage because you're under the assumption that you can go with whatever force you want. Exactly. And the problem is that the outside of the brain has pain receptor. I'm sorry, the outside of the skull, the head, the surface of the skull, uh, the, the scalp, and you know that area has pain receptors, but the brain does not. So the brain itself does not have receptors for pain. So you wouldn't feel the damage directly to your brain but you would to the to the outside of your to, to your scalp. So when you hit some, you know, hit your head against something, what you're really mostly feeling is that pain uh, from your skin and from you know the the t soft tissue on the outside of your head. I wonder if it has something to do with the somewhat non-specific symptoms that accompany a concussion too. That sort of dizziness and difficulty concentrating. Um, if that's something that you know, it doesn't sound as real as uh, you know. An, in 
an open wound that's clearly damaged, you know, that maybe they're just slacking off or it's not a real injury. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that's come up recently is, you know, some very high profile cases where former athletes have committed suicide because they had what they, what they attributed as uh, symptoms related to brain injuries they experienced playing football. For example, Junior Seau, former football player who committed suicide after a long career of, uh, of very successfully playing football. And he really explicitly attributed the problems that he was having to, to these kinds of symptoms related to the injuries he received playing football. Yeah, and it's somewhat, I think it's somewhat unclear exactly what the link between concussion and depression is. But uh, in the paper that we look at, I know that um, a significant amount of the, of the football players who had died and donated their brains had um, succumbed to suicide. So you've got very severe depressions that, that are you know, somewhat controversially linked to these injuries that occur during you know, the sport playing football. You've also got uh, more cognitive type symptoms, especially as players get older. So there, the hypothesis is there are these effects of brain injury that are cumulative over time that actually increase with age. So even after you stop playing, the impact of the previous injuries is somehow accumulating. And this is interesting. I think your comment about the fact that we wouldn't normally go out and seek getting our head hit against hard objects prior to some organized sports, right? I can't think of when people would have repeatedly, you know, they'd engage in a profession where you're repeatedly just bashing your head over time. You might, it might happen, happen every once in a while, but as a, as a real accident and, and sort of an outlier event. But, you know, foot, professional football players are getting this day in and day out for years and years. And boxers as well. I think, you know... Oh, especially boxers, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think historically, boxing is the place where you probably saw this the most. You know, of course, in boxing, you've got the idea of a knockout, which is, you know, very explicitly... You know, causing someone a concussion that that results in unconsciousness. Oh yeah, even forget the knockout. You're just you're just in a ring trying to beat on each other's heads. Right. Exactly. So yeah, the idea of like punch drunk syndrome. You know that over time, you know, as you get as the boxer gets older, you know they they have problems cognitively and potentially physically as well uh, due to the to the brain injuries they sustained. So that's the old terminology, or at least what they would use for boxers um, maybe a century or so ago, uh, punch drunk syndrome, even more nonspecific than uh, TBI, but, but that would be terminology that would have been used. Probably the best known example of this uh, was Muhammad Ali. Uh, sure. Someone who had, you know, pretty significant problems uh, both cognitively and physically after his career as a boxer. It's difficult to attribute in a, in a single case to say that that is due to the injuries he sustained as a boxer. But uh, I, many people believe that that's the case. No, I think he had Parkinson's too, which makes it a little more tricky to figure out exactly. It's complicated. Yeah. So, and, and some are even attributing things like dementia and Parkinson's 
people might say that you actually are more likely to to suffer from those diseases if you sustained traumatic brain injuries earlier in your life. When you're looking at sort of a micro level in the brain, you're seeing some similarities between Alzheimer's disease and severe concussions. You're seeing what are called neurofibrillary tangles. So tangles in the actual cells that that are you know are causing damage in both Alzheimer's and in concussions. So it's unclear exactly how causality works there, but um Right, exactly. You've got these what are called tau tangles that are showing up in, in both scenarios. Hyperphosphorylation of tau is one of the main markers that is seen in chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is that condition that is uh, related to you know, having been exposed to a, a lot of concussions earlier in life. I, I found particularly interesting the list of the most dangerous sports that are out there. And I think this would probably be of interest to most people. So, okay. So the top 20 sports and recreational activities with the highest risk of head injuries. So number one is cycling. That makes some kind of sense, right? Especially if you don't have a helmet on. Well, even if you kind of, even if you do have a helmet on, even if you do have a helmet on to to, to the point we were making earlier, uh, if you you knock your head against the, uh, the pavement, that's uh, right. It's still, you're going to have, yeah. Still You're going to have massive sore. deceleration in, in your brain. Uh, your skull might not break, which would be an advantage. Certainly good to wear a helmet for that perspective. But still, but still, that concussion could be serious. Second is football. That makes sense. And that's kind of what we're basing our discussion around today. And then baseball and softball. And I think that's mostly because of being hit by a pitch in the head. There's the risk of being hit by a pitch in the head. So it's they specify that it's when hitting, when batting. Uh, basketball, uh, soccer to some extent, and you can see that there's been some studies on effects of uh, heading the ball. So if you're, you know, if you're repeatedly hitting the ball hard enough with your head, that could accumulate into something. Uh, and then, you know, golf is kind of way down at the end. I guess you. <laughs> that would be tough. <laughs> yeah, if someone horseback means you. riding, horseback riding. Hockey, of course. Yeah, but yeah, golf. Maybe that's where, where just is where is hockey relative to golf? Well, hockey is actually less risk of head injuries, but I think that may be because that's crazy. just the pure number of people that are playing golf. So they're just talking about number of people going to the emergency room. Oh, okay. So it's not it's not like on like a on a per hour. It's not a. I think it's not on a per hour. It's not on a per hour basis. So. And you can, I mean, you can see that's why cycling would be first because it's such a popular sport and so many people cycle. Certainly fewer people play football. No, but hockey's got to be, if you're playing hockey, hockey I, that's definitely more dangerous than, than golf. That's probably more, more dangerous than baseball as well. I mean, in baseball, the, the, where you see this a lot is actually with catchers because so, catchers get foul balls off their face masks all the time, mm-hmm. especially at higher levels. Professional baseball, you see this all the time once every other game probably a catcher will catch a foul tip off their face mask and that's a pretty significant you know impact and umpire, yeah, umpires and, get it as well and again cumulative too yes trampolines on there i don't know there's you know trampoline parks are becoming more popular now yeah people have trampolines in their backyards you come down on the edge of that the side of your head or you just yep. fall off it and land it on the ground so 
I think the clear message from all this is if you want to avoid head injuries, just don't do any sports. Stay inside. <laughs> but, apart, but I guess apart from that, because that's not really what people want to no, hear. We, we're, not trying, we're not trying to encourage that. That's not what we're, what we're going for. You should live an active life, um, but maybe bearing in mind some of the activities that could be more likely to give you a head injury and you know, think about how you might mediate that a little bit. There are some interesting examples in there. Soccer is an interesting one because people talk a lot about that from the from the perspective of headers, so mm-hmm. heading the heading the uh, you know the actual ball. One of the papers we were reading was indicating some research that in controlled studies they didn't see uh, you know immediate impacts on the brain of you know, heading in a controlled environment. So hitting hitting one time or, or yeah even even multiple times. If you're just doing that in isolation by yourself, so that the speculation was that maybe in soccer, what's causing a lot more of the uh, concussions is when you go, say, for example, when you go to head, oftentimes two players will go at the same time for the ball and they'll crack skulls. Uh huh. And that definitely is, you know, is an impact. Um, oh, and certainly in baseball, too, I guess. You know, when you're trying to catch a ball at the same time. Right. At least that that's what makes it under the highlight clips. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think there are some sports where it's sort of, if you take mixed martial arts and boxing, those sports are clearly not a good idea from a brain injury perspective. You should not do those. Probably never. Ever. You should never do that. If you care about your brain, if you plan on using your brain in the future. Mm-hmm. You should not do boxing, period. It's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. You're trying mm-hmm. to knock the other person out. And what we're saying is that getting knocked out is, is a serious thing. It's not like a minor detail in your life. It's a significant injury that needs to be taken very seriously, especially if you're planning on having that happen multiple times over time. You should probably try to avoid that. So I feel like if you look at the spectrum of things, I feel like boxing is like way out on the on the far end of like just don't do that. That's not not a good idea. People want to do it. That's up to them. But from a recommendation standpoint, it's pretty clear. I think what you need is those, you know, those giant uh boxing gloves and then those huge balloons that you sit in. That's right. <laughs> so you can't actually hurt each other. Right. Exactly. Maybe that's the next step. That's the next that's the next level. But, you know, then then there are sports where you're like, well, it could definitely happen. And I feel like that's where you take like baseball and soccer, where you're like, yes, there is a significant risk of having a head injury while you're playing the sport. At the same time, is the positive impact of playing the sport outweighing that? Some good arguments to be made for for sports like that. And then, yeah. then you've got something like, I don't want to get into cycling because that's like, a, that's a totally different problem because it gets into the whole thing of like, traffic rules and i mean that's a whole different to me that's like a different topic in a way uh right the kinds of people who are ending up in the hospital for that oftentimes are just people commuting or you know riding on the streets etc that's like a whole different topic so cycling is dangerous right there's no question not just for your head in general it's dangerous but also very healthy for you in other ways so again that's like a that's another another issue and i think there's certainly a difference between cycling and boxing in that um you can you can try to be more situationally aware in cycling, or you can sort of improve your expertise or be try to 
aim for a little more safety while you're doing it. Whereas boxing, you know, there's no getting around the fact that you're just going to be hit in the head a whole bunch of times. It's also the point of boxing, right? <laughs> I mean, the point of cycling is not scraping your head against the ground. That's right. And I think about something like basketball. So that's the fourth yeah. highest risk head in, uh, sport with head injuries. Uh, you're not going to wear football helmets while playing basketball or wear equipment like that. But you know, maybe there's some room for referee calls and trying to keep the game cleaner so that it doesn't happen as often. Right. Because it, you know, because seeing that it is a genuine risk and it is actually hurting people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. So then, so I think, you know, that if you put those like on two different ends of the spectrum, like if you take, you know, some of these like lower impact sports on one end of the spectrum and boxing on the other end of the spectrum, the interesting area is football because football is a thing where I am of the opinion that you should not play football. And you should not let your children play football. Now, did you ever play football? I did, I did. So when did you when did you play? I, I you know I wasn't very good at it, so fortunately I didn't play very much. Yeah, I was the same. I was lucky in that I was not good at it either. <laughs> yeah, when did when did you stop? I stopped in. I started and stopped in uh, eighth grade. Right. So I I went through one season. I had to follow through. I had to do it. Luckily, the coach was watching out for me and didn't put me in the game a whole lot. So. I don't think I have too many resultant, too much resultant brain damage, but yeah, I was, I was not particularly suited for football at that age. I played flag football. So I'm trying to remember what grades those were. I think it was like maybe fifth or seventh grade, something like that. Uh, so it wasn't tackle football. So no helmets. It was helmets. No, no helmets. it was helmets. It was helmets. It was helmets. Yep. Uh, but you didn't tackle, you just try to grab the flag. But I, I played I was a line, uh, like offensive lineman and defensive lineman. There's a lot of impact there as you're just bumping into each other, as well as in practice. I think I actually got knocked out once in practice. I think that was the one time I got knocked oh, out. Oh, you actually got knocked out? Yeah. Yeah. I remember it was uh, Dan O'Connor, my friend, uh, and I squared up in, in one of these tackle drills or like blocking drills, maybe it was. He just, yeah, the kid was fast and strong, and he just knocked me out. Dan, if you're listening, it's all good, Dan. Tweet your apologies <laughs> to <laughs> to Joe. It's all good. No, he's uh, he, but he forgives he, you. He was uh, he was just doing what he, he was just playing the game and doing it much better than I was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the uh, you know, so you know, the, in terms of that, I mean, we got we I spoke yeah you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the the top of the show in California, they're starting to limit the amount of time in practice where you can do full contact. Yeah, exactly because of that type of injury that I had, banging into each other in practice a lot. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a lot of minutes of time of, of contact. Um, you know, so it begs the question, if, if you're trying to limit the amount of time you can actually practice or play the sport, does it make sense to be doing it at all? No, it doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean... I think it's controversial, right? It is controversial, but we have some evidence that we'd like to bring to to, to the table here. That's, that's that's scientific evidence, and I think we should. Well, maybe we should should we take a little break and then get yeah, back? Yeah, we'll and talk we'll talk about the, the paper. Paper. Yeah, sounds okay.
Okay, and we're back. So what we want to do now, as we usually do on the show, is to discuss an original paper on the topic. And the paper that we have for today is one from 2017 called uh, Clinico-Pathological Evaluation of Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in Players of American Football. And this is by a whole bunch of authors. The first author on this is Jesse Mez. and there are about 25 other authors on this a large study. And the, the outline of this study is that it is done on football players whose brains were donated for research. So these are deceased football players of all different levels who donated their brains to research, and then they were examined in detail. Uh, and I think of these 202 football players, 177 of them had uh, CTE or this more severe form of uh, damage. Right. So it's kind of an amazing number if you think about it. Of uh, 202 deceased former football players, CTE was neuropathologically diagnosed in 177 players. 87%. No, I don't want to. I I don't want to make too much of that because they they try to make it clear that this is a sample of convenience. I my guess is that the reason why these players donated it to donated their brains to science is because they you know they or their families noticed some serious cognitive impairments and um, thought it was worthwhile to study this kind of thing. So we should say that this doesn't necessarily give you a an accurate assessment of overall football players and what their, how severe their damage might be. Um, But it is still, right. This doesn't despite that. Yeah. These are, these are people with some serious damage. It's not going to let you know what the prevalence is. Right. We wouldn't say that, you know, 80% or or 90% of football players have serious traumatic um, damage. There's a lot of, there are actually a lot of limitations of this study, several of which they mentioned, but probably better to sort of talk first about you know, how the study was done and what, what it's actually showing. And then we can talk about some of the limitations, which are very real. This is kind of why this is an interesting uh, piece of literature, because it it is a very dramatic result, got a lot of attention mm-hmm. and says some pretty profound things, I think. But it's also very controversial because it does have some very serious limitations. So I think it's interesting from that perspective. So let's think about who the players are that they're talking about. Now, they I think they put out a call for just football players in general. And uh, of the... Right. They were, they were advertising, you know, uh, this donation program that if you're a football player... Uh, you can donate your brain to science. And, you know, they recruited people through networks of friends and family, et cetera. And they got players from a variety of different And this is a pretty big study. I mean, to, to get 202 brains for a study like this is pretty amazing. So I think it's, it's fantastic in that respect, for sure. Right. And so they had two pre-high school players, so p- players who never played in high school, 14 high school players, players who played up through high school, 53 college players, 14 semi-professional, 
eight Canadian Football League players and 111 NFL players, National Football League players. That's right. So a large proportion of these were professional or semi-professional players. And then of the remaining players, most of them were college. So it's the it, it's the kind of population that you would want to look at. So it's not just high school football players. Yeah, you want to look at a range also of exposure to to contact right. over time, um, which which this study has somewhat somewhat. So maybe we could talk about that after we talk about the what you know what CTE is in the in the in the case of this particular study yeah. and. You know, and then talk about who's being diagnosed with different levels of severity of, of CTE. Yeah, so CTE, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is a more advanced form of brain damage. Uh, you know, that is a result of concussion. It's not entirely clear how this develops over time. A, you know, a concussion could resolve over the course of a couple of weeks or months and uh, no further damage, or it could, you know, you could see these same symptoms and it could worsen to a form of CTE. The way this is diagnosed in this particular study is by looking at brain slices. So the brains of these individuals who donate to the, uh, to the registry, the brains are fixed and then preparations are made up and these slices are analyzed at, uh, through a microscope and they're stained. And the staining is looking for these markers of neural damage that has previously been shown to be associated with what's referred to as CTE. So this can be somewhat widespread or localized damage. And the, the two types that they're looking at are phosphorylated tau and then neurofibrillary tangles. And these are things that would be visible right. in these kinds of, of thin slices that you couldn't necessarily see uh, in, a, in a person who's still living. Other, other markers that are associated with CTE in, in brains that are you know, uh, analyzed posthumously in this way would be things like brain atrophy. So the actual volume of the brain tissue itself is reduced and you know concomitantly the size of the ventricles the space between you know the brain tissue uh, is increased in this case they're mostly looking at these neurofibrillary tangles and p tau or phosphorylated tau and they sh they were looking at four stages with the first two uh, stages stages one and two being basically just less of these markers um, and being considered a milder form, and then stages three and four with more of these more pervasive uh, signs of, of p tau and neurofibrillary tangles, and those that being a more severe form. So I guess one of the most, I guess one of the results that this gives us is we can look at or we can look at the severity of damage, and we can see if there are any particular brain regions that are being targeted, or if some, you know, if it's just overall generalized brain damage, if there's particular areas that we might associate with particular cognitive functions that are being damaged. Uh, and there are, there are a few 
specific brain areas that they talk about. Now, there are a significant number of these patients or these uh, brains that had the highest stage of CTE, so the worst damage. 57 out of 177 had that high level of damage. And what you see from those brains is it really does look like across the board, you just have a lot of damage throughout the brain. The frontal areas, temporal areas, parietal areas, so just overall general damage to the brain. And as you look at lesser stages of CTE, you see some particular patterns in in uh, certain regions of the brain. So you're getting in the in the lightest stage, the first stage, you're getting mostly damage to the frontal lobe. And this is the kind of damage that might affect uh, judgment and decision-making, working memory, a kind of damage that might not be noticed right away. So it, it could kind of pass unnoticed for a bit. And then as you move progressively more and more through uh, stages of CTE, you just accumulate more and more damage in the frontal lobe and then start getting more in other areas of the brain, areas like the amygdala, which we know is um, associated with uh, uh, negative emotions, especially in, in worse stages, you get damage to the hippocampus. The hippocampus is nearly untouched in early stages, but later on becomes significantly impaired. Uh, so we see serious damages in memory that are probably correlated to these damages, this damage to the hippocampus. That's right. Yeah. So you can see, you know, sort of specific areas being affected more than others. And the frontal lobe topic is something that, you know, you see a lot in traumatic brain injuries, especially associated with these coup counter coup injuries that you would get in a, in a that's right. That would be the first, position. if you're facing head on, you would be most likely to have damage to the frontal lobe. The way that the, the, the skull is shaped is such that creates a little bit of like a little table that your brain kind of crashes into in, in the very front of your uh, of your brain and in the forward part of your skull. So there's also just some structural shape issues as to why that part of the brain is most often impacted. Yeah. There's also been some speculation evolutionarily that, you know, the frontal lobes being the last part of the brain to evolve uh, as you know, robustly as they are in humans. It's the part of the brain that makes us in some ways most human. There's some speculation that that part of the brain is part of its job is actually to be padding. <laughs> I've not the heard that the before. Uh, I mean, if you think about the whole cortex is a little bit like that, right? Uh, where the most important uh, parts of the brain for survival. That's right. Yeah. Breathing and deepest. heart rate and all of that kind of stuff are way in the middle. Yeah. And so the things that are somehow least necessary for survival can evolve on the outside of your brain. It's also a lot of it has to do with just the way that the, you know, has more to do with geometry, but that, there's some speculation around that evolutionarily, which I've, I don't know what to make so of it. So you can get by with less frontal cortex, but you know, why would you? It's better not to. But it's to. better not to. Um, so one of the things to me, this kind of indicates is the spreading nature of, of the disease too, that, um, you know, it can, it may start out in some of these outer structures of the brain and, you know, where the damage actually physically was, but it seems to spread throughout eventually. So it's, it's progressive and neurodegenerative too, that it's, it's an active disease. It's not just at the very point where you, where you uh, 
physically damage that part of the brain. And that neurodegenerative piece is probably the least well understood aspect of it. Why some people are more susceptible to that than others. Um, you know, how it, what exactly the neuropathology of that is, you know, is, is yet to be fully worked out, but it has been something that has been observed as you get older. If you had brain damage, you know, traumatic brain injury earlier in your life, as you get older, the impact of that previous injury is now observed, you know, more. So one of the interesting things with this paper is it gets into looking at the percentages of people with traumatic, with a CTE diagnosed from the brain slices based on how much football they played. Uh, so why well, is that interesting yeah, and important? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe that was a, uh, maybe that was, what we call a rhetorical question or maybe you were going to answer it, but yeah, of course that's interesting. Uh, cause we want to find out how much play causes damage. Can you get by with, uh, you know, is playing high school football, but not following it up with um, maybe more brutal college or professional football okay? Or, you know, is it all pretty damaging? And I think that, you know, the, the reason why this is especially important in this study is because it is a convenient sample and you don't have a control group who, for example, didn't play football, it's really difficult to say how much of an increase playing football caused in the likelihood of having CTE. But you have some sense of the impact of playing a little bit or playing a lot from just the different levels. So for example, three of the 14 high schoolers in the sample showed signs of CTE. That's 21%. Whereas 100 and, uh, 110 of 111 yeah. of the NFL players, 99% had CTE. And this is where, you know, the people looking at the slices didn't know where the slices were coming from. So they didn't know that these brains were high school football player brains or professional football player. Yeah, brains. but al almost every single one of those professional football player brains was ha had some significant uh, damage. A better way to look at that, in a sense, would be a correlation of diagnosis of CTE at different levels or stages as a function of total hours of football played, for example, across so you can really see play. that curve of what it would look like, you know, one more year of football may cause this much more brain damage. That's right. Exactly. I mean, in this case, they're really collecting their data from informants. So, you know, people who knew the players, their friends, their, their spouses, their siblings, uh, neighbors, potentially even tell, you know, telling the report, you know, telling the researchers about how much football uh, these guys were playing. So it's a little bit imperfect in that way in terms of how the data is collected. But you know the pattern is still very intriguing. One other interesting uh, thing that they include here is uh, different positions in football. So you know, if you're thinking about getting into football, what's the worst position to actually play? And it seems like certainly playing a lineman is is pretty bad both the both yeah, every the single play linemen yeah, yeah right so linemen are right in the thick of it and they're really getting hit a lot um so both offensive and defensive linemen show up as uh some of the some of the most prominent of the cases and and also more, account for more of the severe cases also uh, apart from that well, running backs running backs also, as running well. backs also have a pretty significant 
share in this too. Yeah. So if you look at the proportions, 27 cases of severe CTE from running backs and only four of mild CTE, you know, versus linebacker, 12 cases of mild CTE and 14 cases of yes. severe CTE. So a little bit more balanced. So the cases of mild CTE are more likely to come from players who are getting impacted so less and, frequently. And uh, we see that kickers or punters are the best off with no kickers or punters having severe CTE. And that makes sense. I mean, if that wasn't, if we didn't see linemen getting more damage than punters, I think we'd be suspicious. Uh, yeah, clearly the, the ones that have more impact are, are seeing it more strongly. And I feel like that's pretty strong evidence of, I mean, if you're thinking of kind of a dose response or increased damage due to increased hits, we just kind of know informally that you know, a lineman's going to be hit a lot more than, uh, say, a tight end. And uh, that's what we see. Yes. And so in addition to these uh, physiological, uh, anatomical changes that were observed in the brain slices, they also collected data from the informants about some clinical symptoms. So things like cognition and emotion. And I would imagine they didn't have info for all of this because obviously they're dead. Right, exactly. And they also mentioned that there was just some, uh, there were some changes in the way that they were collecting the, the data. So they were really analyzing the most recent 111 cases. So your most, your most prominent cognitive problems are issues with memory, problems with executive function or attention, some even with issues with language. And I guess that relates to that punch drunk syndrome where you know, slurring your words or having difficulty speaking is a characteristic of worse damage. Uh, so, so that kind of issue. And then behavioral and mood issues too. So certainly depression, uh, some impulsivity. We'd expect that from, from patients with frontal lobe damage, uh, anxiety, uh, depression, and suicide, suicidality. So all, all kinds of um, behavioral and mood symptoms pop up here too. And you see, you tend to see these, you know, more severely in the severe CTE cases than in the mild CTE cases. And here we also note, so there were some, some of these patients or some of these brains were also diagnosed in life with having Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. So there's that connection with Muhammad Ali too. Uh, five of the severe CTE patients had Parkinson's. So if you just look at this paper and just take it at face value, what you're seeing is a pattern where people who play football are very, very likely to have brain damage. And the more you play, the more likely you are to have severe brain damage. Uh, and that brain damage will very likely impact you later in your life with real, real world symptoms that could cause problems in your everyday life. I think that's a pretty clear, clear statement from what the paper is saying. Now, of course, there's a lot more to be said about the validity of the results. Yeah. So what do you see as any issues that we should be watching out for here? I mean, the biggest thing right away off the top, and they, they, the authors point this out themselves, is that this is a convenience sample. Mm -hmm. So these are people who themselves or their family members you know, went out of their way to say, I want to volunteer for this brain donation registry, probably because I've, I'm worried that I have a problem based on 
things that have happened to me in my life. That's right. Maybe you want to help out through research so that it's uh, less less prominent for other players so that they can learn something. Right. So it's a bias sample. And I mean, they even say so in, directly in the paper. It's, it's very rare that you would see a very prominent paper directly saying this is a biased sample. And they say that actually directly in the paper. So that's interesting in and of itself. Based on that, you know, what you don't see is you don't see the baseline. This is the biggest problem I had with interpreting mm-hmm. this paper. What would I see if I just took age-matched controls, so people of the same age, and mixed in those samples into this where the clinicians didn't know what they were looking at? And I just took 202 people, didn't play football, and were just randomly identified and looked at their brains. What were the what kind of percentages of CTE at different levels of severity would I see there? This paper doesn't give me any reference for that. Maybe it would be quite similar. I, I find that hard to believe, but very it makes it really impossible to to more directly interpret the results. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and in actual fact, so uh, sixty nine of the of the brains had a cause of death as neurodegenerative. So they certainly knew that there was a severe neurodegenerative disease. And that that is uh, certainly higher than the general population. Um, another thing that I, I think is worth noting is that uh, you see a different, in order of severity from the least severe to the most severe symptoms, you also see an age-related difference too patients with less severe damage are younger. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. And the patients with more severe damage are older. Uh, let's see, the mild patients with mild CTE, the average age of death is only 44. And those with severe CTE, the average age of death is 71. So we're talking about pretty young patients in the mild CTE group and relatively older patients in the severe CTE group. So, I mean, if you just, you know, let those, you know, if they if they hadn't passed away at such a young age, what would their what would their brains look like had they lived longer? Would they have developed a more a severe form of CTE, or maybe they wouldn't? Maybe it would appear the same when they died, you know, thirty years later. So to me, that's a bit of an issue to to keep in mind too. That there's a there's a bit of a confound between age and um, and severity of symptoms, and you know also the fact that these patients had neurodegenerative diseases. Some of those players might have developed neurodegenerative diseases never having played football, right? And maybe that's it has right. nothing to do with football. Right, and this is your point where we need a we need a baseline. So we'd want to have an overall, you know, we really want a nice control group that we can say, in the absence of playing football, these people lived pretty similar lives. But what are you know what are the rates of CTE among those who who never played football but otherwise were similar? The control group that was being suggested in the paper was players who played football but didn't have as many head injuries. I don't know if that's really the right control group because it's hard to know, um, you know, what's happening there. I do feel like you want to have like a non-football player control group. You probably you actually need a lot of different types of control groups over time. This is something that's going to take time to piece out, uh, piece apart. But it's pretty. I mean, right. So, like, where where does this leave us with this paper? I think. This paper in and of itself, to me, is 
merely suggestive. I don't think you can draw any firm conclusions based on this paper. But the suggestion that it's making is incredibly dramatic. Incredibly yes. dramatic. The suggestion that it's making is that if you play football and you play it at a high level for a reasonably long period of time, you will have significant damage to your brain. Yeah, and this fits within, you know, even if it's difficult to reach some conclusions with just this research, I think it fits within a larger picture of research that's indicated the same t kind of thing. So uh, it's certainly not un unreasonable to come to that conclusion, uh, combining this evidence with other, other evidence out there. Yeah, I think at the, at the baseline, I mean, the biggest thing that's changed in our understanding of this work recently, or I mean, when I say recently, even over the past 20 years, but you know, even more so over the past five years, is the cumulative effect of multiple concussions. It used to be thought that, oh, you know, if you play football, you got your bell rung. That was what you'd say. You got your bell rung. Mm -hmm. You maybe felt a little bit off for a second. You go into the sidelines, you'd sit down and drink a glass of water. And as soon as you could walk again, you'd be back out there playing again. Right, right. Which now seems like a pretty bad idea. Yeah, it seems like a bad idea. And why is it such a bad idea? Well, as it turns out, you know, your brain goes through all of these physiological changes like inflammation, like the neurochemical changes you were talking about before, the neurotransmitter changes that you're talking about. And if you're in that state of effect from the first concussion and you go out and get a second concussion, the second concussion is much, much more dramatic in its, in its impact. Even if you wait a long time between you know, the, the impacts and the concussions, it can still have a cumulative effect. And this is, this is why uh, you know, college coaches will make sure that you're out and you're not playing for a significant amount of time before um, you get back in the game. There's, there's a, something called the second impact syndrome, which is the idea that if you're if the symptoms from a first concussion haven't fully cleared, that a second head injury can be much worse. And even a relatively minor blow to the head could cause you to go into a coma. Now, this is, I won't, this is something that isn't fully studied. So it's not, you know, it's not a guarantee that if you have a concussion, you get hit, a, hit again, that it's going to cause, you know, irreparable damage. But, uh, this is a working assumption that I think a lot of coaches will go under that you really don't want to get a second concussion after that first one, you know, as it, if it hasn't cleared up. Yeah. And, you know, I think what you see in, for example, all competitive football, but especially you see it in the NFL is there's a lot of pressure on players and coaches to put, you know, put people back in or to go back in when you maybe aren't really quite ready. Yeah, if the, if the if the goal is to win the game and you need your best player then yeah, yeah, all of the all of the incentives are towards being more aggressive with putting someone back in. And I I think, you know, I watch I still watch football occasionally. I watch it much less than I used to. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny cuz it's like it's it's hard to justify in some ways knowing some some of this stuff. Well, it's funny. This is something, I mean, we almost consider sports heroes to be the the athletes that are out there that get severely injured and come back in and win the game. That's right. Come back in and do something miraculous, which is 
totally stupid, <laughs> especially if it's a concussion. Right. I think, well, I get, that gets into the whole hero discussion. So if you're interested in that, you should yeah. go back and listen to our uh, heroes pod with, uh, with Stephanie Preston. Stephanie. Yeah, yeah. that's right. But, yeah, that was uh, a good discussion. Yeah. But, but the, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, in the case of, you know, some injuries, you know, the threat of re-injury is not so severe. But the case of re-injury here in the case of the brain is is really quite quite important and quite dramatic. And I, I worry, I look at players like Tom Brady, you know, a guy like that, he's, I mean, he's in his 40s now and he's still out there doing mm-hmm. it. And it's like every single time he takes a snap, he's reducing the probability that he can have a quality late life. I mean, he's probably mm-hmm. really in some sense past that already, uh, that threshold. Yeah, it's a risk. We'll no see, doubt. see how it plays out for him. But each additional snap is just increasing that, you know, that probability more and more. And it's also just interesting how with a guy like that, too, you see how he talks about his concussion history versus, for example, how his wife talks about his concussion history. It's very different. It's very different. There's there's a tr- there's a tremendous incentive to downplay how many concussions you've had or the severity. That's a male kind of thing, right? It's a. Uh... You don't want to show that you're hurt. You want to you want to appear strong, right? I think it's also just the athlete thing. Probably a- all athletes are doing that, right? They want to be out there doing playing their game. And, yeah, uh, it means more to them than their brain. Yeah, people are willing to risk a lot, and so yeah. So I mean, I think you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think where we're left with this is that there's a lot of evidence that getting a concussion is bad for your brain. Getting multiple concussions in general is bad for your brain. Is worse than just getting one. Getting multiple concussions in close proximity is especially bad for your brain. And this is something that players, coaches, and parents need to take very seriously. Any last words we want to have about this? No, I, I think in general, the, uh, well, I mean, yes. <laughs> Actually, I should say yes. Well, I'll say too, I'll say too. So, so what I'm thinking of here is just having this on your mind and thinking about this could be useful, right? So if you're not thinking about avoiding reckless kinds of things, you're not going to avoid them. But having this on your mind, especially as you're, as you're doing, engaging in any of these sports might be helpful, but, you know, maybe cut down on the reckless things that you do. But even more important, I guess, is thinking about treatment that those, the first you know, hour or so after getting a severe concussion can be really important in getting it treated. So get to an emergency room right away and let a let a professional take over care of you so that you can get some immediate treatment, which could reduce the longer term effect of some of these kinds of things. And if you've had a concussion, you know, that's giving you maybe some problems now and you haven't seen a doctor, certainly go to a doctor and talk to them about it. And, and taking the time that you need off after a concussion to recover before you get it back out and playing again is super important and is going to be very helpful in making it less likely that you have serious problems down the road. You know, life is full of trade-offs and you have to think about what's important to you and what risks you're willing to take. You can't go through life not taking any risks. That doesn't work. For some people, playing football will be worth the risk, but it's important to do it with eyes open and understanding Mm -hmm. what the consequences could potentially be. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah. And if you want to uh, you know, support the show, you can rate or review us on uh, iTunes or whatever podcast network that you're listening to us on. Also, like our homepage on Facebook, Cognition Podcast. And if you have any uh, feedback that you'd like to give us, you can uh, add us on, fa- on Twitter uh, or at NationCog, or you can just look, at, look up Cognition on Twitter and you can find us there. 
And we'd love to hear from you there or on the Facebook page. Thanks for listening.